us, continue to keep us in your prayers. Um, as, we're te- as we're going through 1 Timothy uh, on proper behavior in the church, you guys, you've been here with us each week along the journey. Um, we've been looking at what it looks like to, um, to act as the body of Christ. And we're mindful that it doesn't mean just how we act in this building, but it's how we act in, in every day of our lives because we want to be consistent. You know, who we are is who we are, so how we function in here should also be how we function outside of the church. And again, the, the Apostle Paul uh, instructs Timothy, uh, these things have I written unto you in chapter number three that you might know how to behave yourself in the house of God or, or ask, ask the house of God uh, or the church. So we want to we continue that theme in, in, a, in a more practical way. And, and last week and this week, we're talking about what it looks like to communicate. Again, one of the main themes of Timothy of Timothy's first letter, or Paul's first letter to Timothy, is this idea of communication, teaching, charging, urging. Um, this is a theme that flows all throughout the book. And the reason for it is, is, is as Christians, we're always teaching, we're always instructing. No matter what we do or what we say, because of who we are in Christ and what we represent in Christ, we're always teaching and instructing. And we're always communicating something, either by our words or by our actions. And we communicate um, whether or not we serve a God who's in control. We communicate whether or not we trust that God. Uh, we communicate whether or not we're fearful or afraid. We're always communicating things, and it, and, it, and it always points back to our God. It always points back to the one that we say we, we trust in or we live for. So it's so important and, and, and significant that we learn to live properly in our daily life so that we represent Christ well. And, um, and again, as I mentioned last week, none of these things make us Christians, make us better Christians or more righteous or better than other people. Um, that would communicate the wrong thing, right? So, but these things are, are, are helpful for us as we go through life and we want people to see what it looks like to follow Jesus. The interesting thing about Christianity is we're people, amen? We're people with problems, right? The world is full of people with problems, right? So what makes us different from the world? What makes us different from the world is how we respond to those problems. We respond to those problems. The Lord talks about not... And when, when people pass away, that we don't sorrow as those who have no, have no hope. In other words, we don't respond to even respond to death in the same way that the world responds to death. And we respond to it differently because we have this greater hope. And that hope is that we have eternity with God, that we don't leave this life and, and, and lay in the grave or come back as an animal, um, but we get to go and spend eternity with God. So when somebody passes from this life, yes, there's a certain level of sorrow there because we're now going to miss that person because they were valuable, they were important, they were significant in our, in our lives. But ultimately, we believe that they're in a better place. And we believe that they're in, in an extraordinary place. Um, that if they had the opportunity to come back here, they wouldn't. We would bring them back if we could but where they're at is so amazing and extraordinary that they would not want to come back and be with us. That is the hope that a Christian has. So while, while we all face death, and we all face the death of loved ones and friends, Christians can look at death and say, 
I, I'm not fearful. And, and yes, it hurts, but it, it hurts in a different way because I have faith that the Lord is, is um, that we're the Lord. And that's, that's the hope that we have. So it's important as we live our lives that we understand that we're constantly communicating things to the people around us, not just by our words. We're always teaching by our words, but we're also always teaching with our actions. And um, Paul tells Timothy, uh, in, in 1 Timothy, he says not just to um, be careful of your words, but he says also to be an example of a believer. I'm gonna read uh, two verses here. 1 Timothy 4, 16 says, keep a watch on yourself and on what you teach. Um, so Paul encourages Timothy to watch over himself and watch over his teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And then in 1 Timothy 6, verse 20 and 21, Paul says, O Timothy, guard the deposit, or another word for deposit here would be guard the truth that has been entrusted to you, and avoid irreverent babble and contradictions, which is falsely called knowledge. Again, avoid myths, avoid, avoid conflicts and arguments that are about things that are insignificant. The church has found itself, the modern day 21st century church on one end of the spectrum has found itself to be very argumentative. The goal of the church is to, be, is to win the argument, not to win people to Jesus Christ. So we have this, this, this false knowledge that he says here, this self-exaltation. He says, be careful of that because it actually is detracting from what the truth really is. Matter of fact, I was reading this week an article, and it was by one of the more modern-day evangelicals, and the, the, the statement was this. To win, a, to win a conflict or to win an argument does nothing for the kingdom of the Lord if it prevents you from winning a soul. And that's a paraphrase of it, but the idea of it is that sometimes we fight to win the argument but in doing so, we lose the relationship. We lose the person. And that, that is not what we want to accomplish. And Paul says at the end of this verse in 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21, he says, avoid irreverent babble and contradictions, which is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it or by communicating it or by teaching it, many have swerved from the faith. Many have swerved off track. In other words, they've... They've forsaken the, the truth. And the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Timothy talks about uh, two guys primarily that had swerved away from the truth and were now um, giving heed to these fables and these, and these myths. Last week, we talked about two things that the scriptures teach us in 1 Timothy not to communicate, okay? So our lifestyle and our words need to avoid the communication of these two things. One was legalism, and legalism is, is, is simply the teaching or the lifestyle that, is, that acceptance is based on performance, okay? I might challenge you this morning that you may be communicating that to your kids without thinking you're communicating that to your kids. There's, there's a danger because we really wanna drive our kids to success, but sometimes what we communicate to our children is that 
is that our acceptance of them is based upon how well they perform what we've asked them to do. And in the end, they end up taking that same theology that we're teaching them by our actions, and they end up taking that, and they end up or, or living that out in regards to their relationship to God. So it's so important. There's nothing wrong with pushing and driving um, excellence with our children, but we must never allow excellence to be the source or the way in which they have relationship. Our, our love for them, our relationship with them, their favor that they find with their parents can never be based upon performance because if it is, it is a misrepresentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our relationship with God, God's favor towards us, has nothing at all, zero percent, to do with our performance. Amen? That's why it's called grace. Grace is favor bestowed upon us without, not without us giving anything to deserve it, but without us not, with us not deserving it. With us doing something that God could actually give us something else negative. The favor of God that is bestowed upon us is a grace that has nothing to do with our being deserving of it. We, can't, we cannot communicate something different in how we live our lives, in how we communicate at work, in how we communicate to our children. We're always communicating theology. So legalism is acceptance based upon performance. And it controls people. Both of these, the goal of both of these is to control people. Okay? And, and let me say this to you. The goal of most false religions today is to control people. Think about it this way. The gospel does what? The gospel sets you free. So doesn't it make sense that every other religion would seek to control you? seek to put you into prison and into bondage. And even those who teach a false gospel are doing that very thing. They're trying to entrap you into a system. The Bible says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty or freedom. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is life. So where the spirit is, we are not bound to do certain things or we're not in some kind of a cage. We are set free, but in that freedom, we desire to do the right things. There's a difference between having to do the right things so that we can have favor with God and doing the right things because we have favor with God. There's a difference between doing the right things so God will love us and doing the right things because God loves us. There's a difference between your kids obeying you because if they don't, they know you won't like them and your kids obeying you because they know that you like them. Do you know which one's gonna last beyond 18, right? Beyond 21, beyond 25 and 35? It's not going to be the ones that obeyed because they were, because you wouldn't like them because when they're 35, they don't care if you like them anymore, right? It's the ones who did what was right because they knew you liked them. They knew you loved them. That's what we communicate. Listen, folks, we're always communicating. Communicating, communicating, communicating. Everything that we do is communication. And people are always listening. 
Kids are listening. Parishioners are listening. Everybody is listening and they're watching us. The world is listening to us. We have to be careful what we communicate. So legalism controls people by rules and regulations, trying to get you into their, into their system. And the Pharisees were really good at this. Matthew 23 gives us a clear example of it. One of the things you'll find about legalistic people is they will put a thousand rules on you. And do you know how many rules they have for themselves? Very few, exactly. Because their system is right, so why would they be under any rules? Very, very, very dangerous. Okay? Here's what the scripture in Timothy calls this, this legalism. He calls it, it calls it vain discussion. And why is it vain discussion? The word vain just simply means to be empty. It's empty discussion. In relation to the gospel, legalism is empty discussion. It, it's, it's a waste of our time. Matter of fact, at the, in chapter number one, verse number eight, and, and, and thereafter, it talks about legalism is for people who are unholy and profane and those who uh, uh, hit their mother and their father and murderers and homosexuals and enslavers and, and liars and perjurers. And, and the idea of it is, 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 is uh, the law is for those who are lost. And the church is a place for those who are, the church is a place for believers. And ultimately, the church is a place where believers come to, to get together to, 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 to uh, grow. And yes, we have lost people that come into the body of Christ and to the church, but, but our goal is to see them saved so that they can grow. That's the purpose of the church. The, the scriptures in 1 Timothy call legalism blasphemy. They call it persecution. They call it insulting. Paul calls it um, deceptive, demonic, insincere, a lie. He calls it having a seared conscience, and he calls it forbidding things. The result of legalism in 1 Timothy is confident assertions. I love the way that the Apostle Paul uses that term because most legalistic people are very confident, aren't they? They make confident assertions about everything. But it doesn't lead to freedom in the spirit. It leads to bondage. Um, bondage was another term that Timothy uses in regards to legalism and then restraints and control. The other system that is equally dangerous, also equally uh, in our world today, is that of Gnosticism. And the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy about Gnosticism. Gnosticism is acceptance based upon intelligence. It's about how deep we are. Okay? It's about being intellectual, being um, the, the Gnostics were well known for mysticizing things. And if you didn't understand their mysteries, it's like these systems out there that have special handshakes and special this and that. And if you don't understand that, you don't fit into their program. You're not one of them. That's the way that the Gnostics functioned. You had to have a certain level of understanding of mystery to fit into their intellectual systems. And these Gnostics control people by debate and knowledge. Okay, always debating, and the goal of a Gnostic was to win a debate, not to win a person. The goal of the gospel is not to win a debate, it's to win a person. Right? The goal of the gospel is going to take time, it's discipleship, it's working with people, it's loving people, it's caring for people, it's sacrificing for people. The goal of Gnosticism is to win an argument that might take you five minutes. 
Gnosticism and legalism both point to the individual who's arguing or who thinks they have the, their system in place, who thinks that they're right all the time. The, the reality of it is this morning is none of us are right all the time, amen? None of us are right all the time. And, and none of us should come across as being right all the time. When we come together, when we converse and communicate with each other, it should be, let me listen to you. Let me ask you questions. Let me, let me, let me peer into what you view about this so that we can work it out and come to a conclusion where we can understand right a little bit better. Most of the time, a legalistic person will come across as being, no, this is the way it is. And there's danger in that because there is no, there is no learning there. There is no attitude of being teachable. The Gnostics were that way. They overcame people by being very good debaters. The Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, here's what he calls Gnosticism in the book of 1 Timothy. He calls it a system of myths, okay? He calls it endless speaking, irreverence, silly, prideful, ignorant, unhealthy, babble, false knowledge. And here's what it leads to. It leads to speculations. It leads to controversy. It leads to quarrels about words or arguments about words. It leads to, the Apostle Paul calls it leading to constant friction. I asked myself as I was studying this this week, do I, does my life lead to constant friction? Is there constant friction in the relationships that I have with people? Am I the cause of constant friction? You have to ask yourself these questions. This is the challenge of our heart is, am I in this pattern. If I am, then Lord, please set me free. Constant frictions, envies, envy, slander, and evil suspicions. This is what Gnosticism leads to. These are the two things that we don't want to communicate by how we live or by how we, um, or how, how we talk. But how should we communicate? That's what I want to get to this morning. I want to give you a few things um, based on the, on the book of 1 Timothy on, on some things that we ought to be communicating, that we ought to strive to communicate in everything that we say and do. These things ought to be the motivation for what we do. These things ought to be our desire. I want to communicate this message to the people around me by my words and by my actions. So let's look at it together 1 Timothy chapter number 1 is where we'll start. The Apostle Paul says several things throughout the book about, um, again, about communications, but he, he says this over and over again. He says, this is a worthy saying, or this is a saying that should be accepted by all people. So we're going to kind of look at some of those patterns in the book and find out what the Apostle Paul wants us to, to, to communicate and so beginning in verse number 15 for the first one, the Apostle Paul says this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In other words, the Apostle Paul says this saying is a, a true saying, it's a, a, a biblical saying, and it is worthy of everyone acknowledging and accepting this saying. This is a 
universally true statement. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So the first thing that the Apostle Paul communicates that I, I want to deal with, I, I put them in a different order than possibly the Apostle Paul did, but I think it's valuable to go in this order. The first thing that we want to look at is the communication about self. What do we communicate about ourselves? Personal communication about self. We see the Apostle Paul in this verse of Scripture communicating an unworthiness, communicating a, a sense of depravity, a sense of need. There are some things about the Apostle Paul's statement when he says that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, is that the Apostle Paul, you'll notice, in communicating with Timothy and the people of Ephesus from which, uh, where Timothy is located, the Apostle Paul doesn't point at their fallenness, right? It would have been very easy for the Apostle Paul to say, yeah, Timothy, look at these things that you've done in your life and look at the people that you're dealing with. Whose sins does the Apostle Paul point at when dealing with these people? He points at his own sins. He points at his own fallenness. He points at his own unworthiness. He points at his own brokenness. He points to these people and he says, I am the Apostle Paul, basically. In the first few verses, I have been commanded by God to communicate this. But you're talking about and looking at the chief of sinners. The Apostle Paul took full responsibility in communicating this message to them on himself and not on them. In other words, he didn't point his finger at them. He pointed his finger at himself. We see that in Matthew 7 when the Lord talks about be careful when you're trying to deal with other people's problems that you don't overlook the fact that you have a beam in your own eye. Deal with your own beam. and In other words, look at yourself first. See your own fallen condition. You see, folks, the problem isn't that the Ephesus church or Timothy had a specific sin in their life and the Apostle Paul had different sins in their life. That's not the problem. That's not our problem. The problem is we're all sinners. The Apostle Paul could come in here and point at any individual in this entire room and say, sinner, right? So here's what the Apostle Paul does. He walks into the room and he says, sinner, me, sinner, me, sinner. Personal responsibility, pointing at self and not pointing at others, but yet making the point that we're all sinners. And when we're dealing with people and we're dealing with the gospel, the first thing that we want to point out, the first thing that we want to communicate to people is not that we're better than they are. It's not that we've risen above them, but it's that we're all equally sinners and that all being equally sinners we all need to be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ for he alone is capable of saving us we've got to take personal responsibility for our struggles especially if we're going to help other people take personal responsibilities for their struggles if you've ever been in a situation a counseling situation or a situation where you were trying to help somebody or a situation where you had conflict with somebody, you always find that you will 
or you don't always, but often you will find that the attitude that you give is the attitude that you get. A, a proverb says a, a soft answer turns away wrath, right? So sometimes when we give anger, we get anger. When we give grace, we get grace. When we give accepting of responsibility, we get accepting of responsibility. I can't tell you how many times, not, not, not in the world, but in the church, that I sat down with people and it's all we talked about was how much the other person did wrong. How much the other person did wrong. How much the other person did wrong. And do you know what? I sat down with the other person and do you know what they talked about? Anybody want to guess? How much you did wrong. But neither were willing to take responsibility for their own part in the situation. And I can almost guarantee you, 90% of the time, if one person would say, you know something, I've done wrong, I'm gonna make this right, and goes to that person and says, you know, I wronged you, not focused at all on what they've done, but say, I've totally wronged you and I was, I, I was wrong, and I need to make this right according to scripture, you will get a response back that's similar. That's what the apostle Paul does. Here's what he wants us to communicate. He wants us to communicate that we're broken, that we're personally unworthy, that we're personally undeserving, we're personally depraved, we're personally just like anybody else. We need the Lord just like they do. He wants us to, to display personal responsibility. He wants us to display honest responsibility or honest unworthiness, to be real about our unworthiness the depths of it. Romans 12 and verse three says, for, the, for by the grace given to me, I, am, I say everything among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think of himself soberly, each one according to the measure of faith that God hath given him. Philippians two and verse three through four says that we're not to do anything by selfish ambition or deceit, but in humility, we're to count other people as better than ourselves looking after their interest and not our own interest. This comes from a, a, a personal perspective, an understanding of self that causes us to communicate that we're no better than anybody else. I pray that when people walk by this church, they don't look and say, there's a building full of people that think they're better than we are. Even if they're homeless, even if they have nothing, I pray that they don't walk by and think, that's a place full of people that are better than we are because this place is not a place of people that are better than they are. It's not. The Lord, the Lord challenges the church at uh, Laodicea in Revelation chapter number three because they got that attitude that they were better than everybody else. And here's what he says to them. He says, you, you think that you're rich and increase with goods, or you say that you're rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing, you say that you're better, but you don't realize that you're wretched, naked, poor, and blind. And may I submit to you that that, that reprimand to them is no different than the reprimand to us today. If we're a church that thinks we've arrived, we miss the fact that we're wretched and poor and blind and naked. We need Jesus. There has to be an honest acknowledgement of who we are without Christ. We're not better 
1 John 1 and verse 9, you're familiar with it. The Lord says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And the idea of confessing our sins is to, is to be really honest about them, to acknowledge them for what they are. You know, a lusting is, is adultery, and, and hating is murder. Not minimizing what we have done, but, but you know, we, we, we look at the TV and we see a guy on there and he's on, he's on, he's getting, he's in the courts and the judge is getting ready to lay down his gavel for, for murdering somebody and we're like, go get him! And, 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 and in the back of our minds, we hate 45 people in our, in our neighborhood. Is that an honest view of self? It's not. So listen, folks, as we get an honest view of self, as we get a realistic view of who we are and where we've come from and what we're capable of, we start to look at people and communicating to people totally different things. I was talking, I think it was to Michael this week, talking a little bit about preparation for the sermon, and I, and I said, it's interesting that when I look at somebody and I see either where I've been or I look at somebody and I see my potential of being where they are, I'm far more gracious. But when I look at somebody and I cannot see that I have the potential of being where they are, I'm very legalistic towards them. We have to see our own potential to be where those people are. When we can see that, we can show amazing grace and strength in the gospel to them. We have to show an honest unworthiness. And then thirdly, in regards to how we view self, we have to understand an extreme. The apostle Paul says that I'm the chief of sinners, an extreme unworthiness. He says in another passage of scripture that he is the least of all the apostles. We would never look at Paul and say he was the chief of sinners or the least of the apostles, but Paul looked at himself and said that. He was honest about who he was outside of Christ, and that was what drove him to live a life of humility and kindness and grace towards people, many of them who wanted him dead. When the apostle Paul presents his testimony in 1 Timothy and also in Galatians and 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul always starts off by describing who he was before he was saved, and he never minimizes it never minimizes what his life was like. He calls himself a blasphemer. Right here in 1 Timothy, in, in chapter number one, he says, before I was saved, I was a blasphemer of God. That's a serious accusation that he makes on himself. When we communicate, we think about communicating in life, it's important that we communicate properly about self, an attitude of humility, an attitude of neediness, an, atti an attitude of of, of hopelessness without Christ. We're not in any better situation than they are. What they need, what the world needs is Jesus. And we have to communicate that by how we function, how we speak and how we talk and how we treat them and how we treat each other. We're always communicating these things. How we, how we communicate about self. Number two, the second thing that the apostle Paul tells us to communicate is to communicate hope in Jesus Christ. He says, it's amazing that when we get to that place where we see our own fallenness and our own neediness, 
we're able to embrace Christ for salvation, but we're also able to communicate to others that they can embrace Christ for salvation as well. No one is beyond the saving power of Jesus Christ. So the message is, is don't teach people by your actions and your, and your words legalism or Gnosticism, but teach people by your actions and your words that you're unworthy. Amen? Okay. Anybody else out there unworthy this morning? I'm unworthy, but Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. So we move from looking at our unworthiness, and that has to constantly be a, a, a driving force in how we treat other people with humility and grace, but now we enter into the state of, now I want to communicate Jesus, because Jesus is worthy. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is enough. And no one is beyond the, the saving power of Jesus Christ. He is, he is without question the only hope that we have. He is the only hope that we have. And the hope that we have is the same hope that the world has. It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. We must communicate that. Listen, folks, we can communicate, you can, you can be saved and you can be delivered if you just fix your life, if you just stop doing this and this and this, or we can communicate that Jesus is the only hope that they have. We can communicate to them that, yeah, I had all these problems in my life before, but man, I went through this plan, this system, and it really helped me out, or we can communicate that Jesus really helped me out. We're always communicating these things. What is the source of deliverance? What is the source of salvation? It is none other than Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God and our, our God our Savior and of Jesus Christ our hope. And I would just like to say this, our only hope. There is one name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. There is one hope, and that hope is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And we, according to 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, we ought to be able to give a, an account or a witness to the hope that lies within us. We ought to be able to give an answer for why we are a hopeful people. May I submit to you that not many people will ask an unhopeful person why they're hopeful. You'll never be given an opportunity to give an answer, as Peter tells us, for why you have hope if you don't have hope. You've got to be a hopeful person as a believer. We see, we see throughout the book of 1 Timothy that the entirety of salvation, the entirety of our hope is packaged in Jesus Christ. L follow along with me, if you will, in um, verse 12 of chapter number one. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, amen? Because he judged me faithful, accounting me, uh, appointing me to the ministry. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, okay? That's who I am, that's who I was, but I received, what's the next word? I received mercy. I received something that I, I, I had something removed that I deserved, a punishment. I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the, what's the next word? And the grace of God, the unmerited favor of our Lord overflowed with me, overflowed um, for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received, what's the next word? Mercy again. We see this flow of grace, mercy, love, and favor all throughout the book of 1 Timothy. And it is the foundation that we build our hope on. It is why we are hopeful that we have been promised God's mercy and God's grace. And all of it, you'll notice this throughout the book, all of it is packaged in this person. Now, it's, it's like what he says in 1 John, he who has the son has everything. He who has the son has life. So in other words, Jesus Christ is this, is this package of everything, number one, that God requires for salvation. He has the fulfillment of the law in himself. But he's not only the fulfillment of the law, but he is also the package by which we are saved. We get him, we get everything for life and for godliness. Everything is packaged in the person of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we pursue all of these things we want to have heaven, and we want to have peace, and we want to have joy, and we want to have happiness. So we pursue these things, and the Lord in his word says, pursue Jesus and have these things. The devil says, pursue these things. It's all packaged in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one through which and by which we can be saved. The New Testament is very, very clear on the fact that all of these things are in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus is in us. That's the hope that we have. The Lord says that, um, I'm drawing a blank on that verse so I'm not gonna even try it. <laughs> uh, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I can't think of the rest of the verse but you get the idea. The hope that we have is Christ in us. And in him is everything that we need. It's everything that we need. Some of you are thinking of the verse right now, so tell me later <laughs> so I can remember. Think about these words in this text. Mercy, number one, is God not giving us what we deserve. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. And we always think of mercy as being eternal hell, but there's so much more that is, is, is packaged up in mercy um, the Bible, the word mercy is translated long-suffering in the scriptures. It's, 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 it's um, translated kindness in the Old Testament. And so that, that, that idea is, is that the Lord shows us favor when we deserve, or doesn't show us condemnation when we deserve condemnation. Psalm 136, his mercies are new every morning. Some versions say his loving kindnesses are new every single morning. Amen. His grace is new every single morning. Titus 3 and verse 5 says, we're not saved by works of righteousness, which we have done, but we're saved by his, by his mercy. Mercy is that God doesn't show us condemnation. He doesn't show us justice. He doesn't show us wrath or revenge or hell or destruction or anger. God doesn't show us any of those things, although we deserve them. And why doesn't God show us any of those things, although we deserve them? Because he poured them out on his son. You see, mercy is not just when you don't get something that you deserve. Mercy is when somebody else took what you deserve so you wouldn't have to. Never minimize mercy as something that wasn't given to you that you deserved. 
maximize it by understanding that someone had to take it in your place. So all of the punishment and the wrath of God that you deserved and that I deserved was not misplaced or overlooked. It was poured out in full capacity on God's only son. That's what mercy is. Listen, folks, that's the basis of our hope. That's the foundation of our hope. It's not just mercy, but grace. Grace, again, in our text here, God giving us things that we don't deserve. Forgiveness, kindness, favor, blessing, hope, eternal life, new life, understanding, salvation, strength, heaven. All of these things are the grace of God. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. Listen to me. Grace is not when only, grace is not only when God gives you something that you don't deserve. Grace is when Jesus Christ gives up something so that you can have it that you don't deserve. You see, Jesus had to give up all of those things so that we could have them. That's what grace is. Never minimize grace to just being about you. Grace and mercy are not just about us. They're about him. Matter of fact, friends, it's all about him. The word faith is used here. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, so that no man can boast. It's packaged in Christ. Love is the, faith is the means by which we access God's grace. Love is the means by which, or the evidence that we have God's grace. And we find in scriptures that love is also a gift from God that he bestows upon us. Salvation all things are packaged in Christ. If you have Christ, you have all of these things. Communicate that. Communicate that to your neighbor, to your loved one. It's all about having Jesus, right? It's all about having Jesus. When you have Jesus, everything, everything that the Lord wants to accomplish will fall into place. You will be conformed into the image of his son, not only is salvation packaged in Jesus, I'm, I'm gonna just speed through this last thought. Salvation is mediated by Jesus Christ. The Bible says in chapter number two that Jesus Christ is the only mediator. He is the mediator. Uh, the scripture says in the text there, he's a mediator as our ransom or the payment to purchase us. He's a mediator as our intercessor, meaning he stands uh, on our behalf. And he's a mediator as our high priest, meaning that he sacrificed and he, the sacrifice, he sacrificed himself so that he could present us to God and that sacrifice was acceptable. We wanna communicate that Jesus Christ is everything that we need for salvation, nothing more, nothing less. We wanna communicate that Jesus Christ is our only hope. In the end, and I close with these thoughts, in the end, always be careful when you're dealing with how you live as a Christian, not to communicate to the world around us legalism or Gnosticism. Because these will both communicate self and pride. And I would say to you this, I was thinking about, that, thinking about this this week. If anybody ever comes to salvation because it is so intellectual, 
they've come to a false salvation. In other words, if you're so smart that someone would say, you know, that Christianity thing is the smartest thing in the world. Because the Bible says that to a lost person, Christianity is the foolishness of the world. No one should ever come to the gospel because of how intellectually elite it is. Nor should anybody come to the gospel because they see it as a way to exalt self in their legalistic ways. People should come to the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. It is the hope that they have and the only hope. Now, how do we do this? How do we keep our focus on Christ? And here's the answer. In this book, there are two doxologies, very rare, because there's not a lot of doxologies in all, the, in all the other books, but there are two in the book of Timothy. I'm gonna give you a few thoughts from these and be done. First Timothy 1 and verse 17, the Bible says this, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. I just want you to think about one, one small phrase within this verse. In order for us to communicate the right things about self and about Jesus, we must realize this, that Jesus Christ is the only God. That word only is so significant to the flow of this verse. He is the only one. He is the only God. He is the only king. He is the only mediator. He is the only sovereign. He is the only Lord. He is the only one that can give us hope for salvation. At the end of 1 Timothy chapter number six, he says, he who is blessed, he who is the blessed and only, there it is again, the only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion forever, amen. Here's what the apostle Paul does for Timothy. If you're struggling with teaching Gnosticism or legalism, here's what he does. He elevates God and Jesus Christ to a whole new level. And he says this, if you wanna talk about somebody, talk about Jesus. Because he's the only one who can bring deliverance and salvation. If you're here this morning and you're with us and you're struggling and you're working through life and you're perhaps bound in sin and you're, you're consumed by temptation and, and things just have control of you and you know that you have no power over those things, listen to me. Jesus Christ is sufficient to bring deliverance over those things. And it's not deliverance over those things that matters. What matters is Jesus Christ but it's possible that those things are in your life in such a way to bring you to the only one who can deliver you. There are some who want to be saved some other way, but Jesus says in John 14 that there's no other way to come to the Father lest they come through Jesus Christ. Folks, my challenge to you this morning is acknowledge honestly, personally, who you are without Jesus and realize that he is the only one who can bring deliverance. And as you embrace him, the Bible says it in our, in, our, in our text of scripture here in Timothy that Jesus Christ came and he came to save the lost 
Namely, he says, those who believe. If you will embrace what Jesus Christ has done, it will be personalized, it will be applied, if you will, to your account. And salvation in Jesus Christ will be yours. And because of that, you will have eternal hope. And so I encourage you with that this morning. Um, if you have any questions or anything like that, seek out one of the pastors here. Thank you.